Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This podcast exists because of the paid subscribers at decodingtv.com. Become a paid subscriber and get access to ad-free episodes as well as early access to episodes. Thanks to everyone at DecodingTV.com who makes this podcast possible. You should go. Yes, you go. What you do now is a blast. I'm going to have to whip your ass in the middle of a Chinese restaurant. God damn it, Jamal. Mm-hmm. You better tell them I do that black belt. Oh, look, I have one too. You just had to do that. No, Carolyn. He a pig. I believe that term applies more to police. I'm a deputy U.S. Marshal. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Decoding TV, a podcast about television. I am David Chen. I'm Sarah Mars. Welcome to the podcast. On today's episode, we're going to be discussing Justified City Primeval, episode five. You good? That's the name of the episode. Uh, I am not just asking. You can find more episodes of the show at podcast.decodingtv.com. Email us at decodingtv at gmail.com. Find us on TikTok, Instagram, YouTube, and threads at decodingtv. Today on the podcast, we'll start by sharing overall thoughts on episode five, then dive into a more detailed recap uh, before we wrap up with our favorite quotes from the episode. So Sarah Mars, let's start. By talking about our overall thoughts on episode five, what'd you think of this episode of Justified City Primeval? I liked it. I have generally liked all of the episodes. Um, some good old fashioned investigating happening also feels like some people are starting to make decisions that are going to have some big consequences. I thought it was a pretty solid episode as well. It was really a spotlight for Anjanu Ellis's character of Caroline, uh, Carolyn in this episode. That's something that Justified... Uh, did a pretty good job at, you know, justified uh, original flavor, uh, did a pretty good job at, which is like taking a side character and illuminating a lot about their lives. And this was a very Carolyn heavy episode. Uh, and Anjuna and Ellis obviously up for the challenge. So uh, I thought it was a solid episode as well. Um, and yeah, there's only three episodes left after this. So really preparing us for the end game here. Um, but uh, a little bit more table setting to get the pieces in place for what I assume is going to be a fairly eventful, I'm going to say final two episodes, uh, even mm -hmm. though there's three episodes left to go. All right. Before we get to our more detailed recap, Sarah, uh, any other notes you have about this episode of the show? Um, yes. So this episode was written by Isa Davis and Chris Provenzano, who wrote episode three, Backstabbers. I also want to shout out director Kevin Roddy Sullivan, who... Uh, famously directed how Stella got her groove back. He lit this episode so beautifully. I was complaining last episode about it being underlit and hard to see details. And there are some really beautiful nighttime and darker scenes, like scenes that are happening in dark rooms at night. And yet you can see details, you can see faces and expressions really wonderful lighting in this episode. So I really, it's like, you can do it. it. You can film at night, you can film in the dark, and you can make it legible to your viewers. And speaking of it being a uh, Carolyn heavy episode, I mean, Anjanu Ellis Taylor looked 
amazing in this episode. Part of that lighting is that she was very well lit. So it was a, a really good looking episode for a, for an episode. It's a lot of just like driving around. They used a lot of really beautiful um, South Chicago street scenes, streetscapes, the architecture, you see the old uh, brick row houses. And and I know Southside Chicago gets a bad rap. People hear only bad news about it, but it is a really beautiful part of town. Very historic. The Prairie District is down there where all the like early 1890s, 1900s craftsmen and arts and crafts homes are. And you get a little taste of the, the age and the beauty of the city. I know it's supposed to be Detroit, but I just thought it looked really nice for an episode where they're kind of just driving around a lot and just knocking on doors. I'm like, this looks really good. Uh, all great call outs. You know, one thing, Sarah, we should maybe discuss at this point is we're about to dive into a detailed recap of the episode, but maybe let's talk about something the episode doesn't contain, which yes. is it doesn't contain any Willa. It's the second episode in a row that does not feature Railing Givens' daughter, Willa, uh, who is played by Timothy Oliphant's actual daughter. And you had some strong thoughts about this in the pre-show conversation. So I thought, <laughs> let's let's talk about the Willa implications of this episode because there's there's one brief scene that even references Willa, re really. And it's uh, Raylan Givens texting Willa, just checking in, being like, hey, thinking about you, hope you're doing okay. And she's like, I don't want to talk right now, bye. You know, like that's kind of what, what uh, she writes in response via iPhone text. So yeah. you are really concerned that the entire character of Willa is going to end up being totally pointless, yes? Yes. I went back. So this is episode five. I went back and watched one through four as a chunk, binged those four, then watched episode five when it dropped on Hulu this morning. And it really occurred to me after the setup in episodes one through three and then no Willa in episodes four and five, except for this little text exchange where Raylan is texting her saying, I miss you. Can't wait to see you. And then she's like, I can't talk back. And I was like, that text exchange, which did not require Willa to be a presence in the show, tells you everything you need to know about their relationship. And I really feel like, I know I said earlier, like I would hate it if Willa was a dumb, like movie kid trope. I actually think I am going to need Willa to do something stupid and reinsert herself in the narrative no, or, or no. else she is a waste of space. And this is nothing against Vivian Oliphant. I truly don't believe her performance is bad. It's not like she's doing a lot. She doesn't have a lot to do. Um, I don't think it's her. It's the character. It's the writing of the character. I, after five episodes, I was like, truly, what was she here for? Um, I, I just think that, it's fine. You know, I, I kind of think like Raylan doesn't need a kid. He's not a character that needs a kid. But if he has one, truly, I think what would work just as well, that's my cat. What would work just it's as pancake. well. <laughs> you might hear some pancake cameos in this episode of the podcast, but yeah. Um, what would work just as well is if we just felt him, like in the beginning when he's driving in Florida and he encounters the two fugitives who have warrants from Michigan. That's how he gets to Detroit, taking those guys to Michigan. I don't think we needed Willa, the whole like taking her to child jail, like all of that. I, I think all we needed to hear was he is coming up on his summertime block with Willa. He encounters these fugitives. He has to get them to Detroit. He's in a hurry to get back to Florida to be with Willa. And then he gets held up by Clement Mansell. That's all we need. We just need the suggestion that this is infringing on his, this is the time of year where he gets uninterrupted Willa time. 
and Clement Manziel is a roadblock and he's just, let's get this over with. I want to get home. We didn't, we, we don't need her. She has done nothing in the narrative that, you know, we didn't need her to raise the stakes with Clement. He was scary from the beginning. She has accomplished nothing. I, I, I'm just like, why, why was she here? Except that there is this thing where people who are parents think that being a parent is like really fascinating. And it's like, I mean, it's not a lot of people do it. <laughs> like, wow. um, okay. So. <laughs> All right. Let me, let me interject, uh, Sarah. Okay. I think I dare say, Sarah, that you might be holding uh, now. Look, as of the moment that we're recording this, that we are recording this. We have no idea if Willow will come back. Okay. Right. In the final three episodes. Maybe she's going to be literally scene one, episode seven, uh, or episode six, whatever the next one is, or episode six of the next one. So very possible. Uh, I have, Sarah, I just want to tell you my journey. Okay. <laughs> uh, I have started to make peace with the fact that Will is going to show up for like three seconds at the end of the final episode, right? Like, mm -hmm. it's like, mm -hmm. hey, we, maybe we don't see Will again at all. And maybe we see her for like a few few minutes at the end of the season. And would that justify Willa being there? I don't know, but like, it's not the worst thing I've ever seen. You know, it's just like, hey, hey, they wanted to show you that Raylan Givens is dealing with a lot of things, a lot more things this time around. Like he has got, got a lot more clanging around in his mind this time around. It's just background window dressing for the season. And I'm actually, or, or maybe, Sarah, here's another alternative. They started making the show. They're like, Will is going to be a huge, she's going to get up to all kinds of endangerments of herself and people are going to love it. And then they start watching the show and they're like, actually, this sucks. Everyone hates this. And then, so they take her out of the show. Like it, it, it's possible for a show, per, a showrunner to change tack partway through a season because they see what's working and what's not. And you know, this feels like maybe that happened. And if that's the case, I salute it. Great job guys for figuring out what was working on the show and not. Um, so I don't need Willa to come back. I don't think she should come back. If she never comes back again, I'm going to be perfectly fine with it. Um, so I think I just feel differently than you. You know what I mean? Well, I, I do think the most likely thing at this point, I know I said she's going to do something stupid and like hitchhike back to Detroit or whatever. I actually, after watching the five episodes, I'm like, I wouldn't be surprised if she shows up at the end of the final episode, the reunion with Raylan, and that's the quote unquote happy ending is that he gets back to spend time with Willa. Um, I just don't think that it adds anything of interest to the show. And this is just eight episodes and we're five, wait, we're five through. And what I'm really feeling is the crunch. And I'm like, all that time in the first three episodes that we gave to Willa, could that have gone to someone else? Like... Could that have been, is that time that could have, been, and you're right, if they realized halfway through filming, like, hey, Willa's actually not adding much. We need to just start cutting her out. Yeah. It's like, that's fine. And you're right. That's a good, and Justified has like rolled with those punches before of making those midstream changes. Yes. I yes. don't think we would ever know for sure that that's what happened. Um, I just feel like watching these five episodes, knowing there's only three left, I'm like, she isn't adding much. I, I think it would have been an, like that old Raylan's dealing with a lot. Again, just like a quick establishment of my time with Willa is coming up and you are making me late or potentially going to make me late. That would have been enough. I don't we didn't need to see her in person. Sarah is still talking about Willa in the present tense. She's saying, you know, she's saying like, Willa isn't adding much. In, in my opinion, Willa is a distant memory of the show. Like, I'm just like, well, it's oh, also, Willa's um, still part of the show? I, I didn't recall. It, um, it's like training of, of writing reviews. You write in the present tense because the movie or the show always exists. 
So sure, you, fair, you, fair. you don't write in past tense, you write in present. So I'm just like, I always talk about these things in present tense. But Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think that it reflects our, our difference of opinion on how the show is handling Willa as well. Um, but we'll see. Again, maybe, you know, cold open next week is going to be very Willa heavy. Who knows? Who knows? Maybe. <laughs> uh, anyway, so that's what didn't happen in this week's episode of Justified. Those are our overall thoughts on season, uh, or I'm sorry, season one, I guess, episode five of Justified City Primeval. Uh, you good. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Life is full of what-ifs, some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry, and some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs, no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. All right, let's get into a detailed plot summary of the episode. Uh, let's start with what's going on with Clement Mansell this episode. Uh, Clement and Sweetie decide to shake down a local developer, Bulldozer Bert Dickey, who's played by David Cross. Sweetie specifically warns against tangling with ethnics after finding uh, after Clement finds an Albanian in the notebook. I put ethnics in uh, quotation marks there. That is uh, Sweetie's words, not mine, okay? Uh, Sweetie and Clement meet with Dickie to extort him, and Clement is distracted by a painting that looks like his home in Oklahoma, presuming the tornado story is true. They get some money out of Dickie, around $10,000, uh, which is $40,000 less than what Clement wanted. Uh, and Clement intends to keep squeezing people in the notebook, though Sandy remains preoccupied with the Albanian threat. Clement goes to see Bert Dickie in the middle of the night later to get that form painting. And that's kind of what happens with the Clement Sweetie. Uh, and Sandy storyline this episode. So uh, what did you make of how this all played out, Sarah Mars? I mean, Clement continues to not care about the Albanians. Every Everyone else <laughs> continues to be somewhat concerned with the Albanians. Um, they name dropped an Albanian, specifically the one in the book. And so I kind of thought uh, his name was like Delvina. And I'm like, okay, this this might be how Raylan gets out of it. Because there's the blood feud that's going, that's happening. We don't see it this episode. They're not, the Albanians are not present in the episode, but it is still happening in the background. And it's like, he's got to get out from under that somehow. And it's like, well, he's now there's this guy in the book. At some point, maybe somebody, Raylan, Clement, Sweetie, Carolyn, somebody, maybe somebody uses that to end the blood feud somehow. Um, so that was interesting. The fact that they gave that Albanian a specific name, I'm like, eh, we're that's probably going to matter. Well, speaking of specific names, are you a Coen Brothers fan, Sarah Mars? I am, yes. Did you did you catch the Coen Brothers reference in the book of names? No. So at one point in the episode, I th it, uh, Sweetie and Clement are hanging out, I think at a diner, and they're like going through the book, right? And I think it's Clement that's like reading. It's Clement or Sweetie starts reading out the names. I think it's Clement. And one of the names he reads out is Bernie Birnbaum. Do you know who that is? Yes. Isn't that Burn After Reading? No. Burn oh. Burnbaum is the John Turturro character from the 1990 Coen Brothers classic Miller's Crossing. I think I've only seen that once. Oh, it is 
one of my top 10 movies of all time. It is it is an incredible film. Uh, Bernie Birnbaum plays this kind of very underhanded, not nice, kind of a fly in the ointment character who has one of the most memorable and iconic scenes from the movie. Often, you know, the scene uh, that's in many of the posters of Miller's Crossing is Gabriel Byrne standing in the forest with this guy begging for his life on his knees. The guy begging for his life on his knees is John Turturro's character, Bernie Birnbaum. So I just thought that was in the, I think, you know, when I heard it, I was just like, what? Did I just oh, hear it, Bernie Birnbaum? It would be deliberate. Um, I yeah, mean, that I'm, would I'm be I'm pretty Easter sure egg. It's, it's a nice little Easter egg for those who are big Coen Brothers fans. Um, and Bernie Birnbaum, is, you know, that movie I think took place in the uh, 20s, uh, 40s, where you know, wherever. Uh, Pro- it was Prohibition era, whatever it was. 20s. So I think it was 20s, yeah. And uh, Bernie, but if Bernie, if uh, Miller's Crossing took place today, Bernie Birnbaum is the kind of character who would be in that book. So uh, I thought that was a, an appropriate sort of uh, reference as well as a nice little Easter egg. Um, but yeah, there's there's a lot of nice little character moments in this episode. There is a, there's a moment when Clement and Sweetie are in the car waiting for uh, David Cross's character to come home. And Sweetie tells this whole story about how he used to hang out with Miles Davis. And Clement Mansell asks the question, why did you think of that story just now? And then Sweetie doesn't answer the question. Do you have any opinion on what was going on with that Miles Davis story? Well, I think music is something that Clement and Sweetie genuinely have in common. Um, They both are big fans of music. But also his specific story was that Miles Davis didn't say anything to him. They went to jam, like a late night post-show jam session. And the only thing Miles Davis said to him was, you have big ears. Which I took to mean, especially for jazz musicians, good listening. Mm-hmm. And it's like, Sweetie is just absorbing everything. He's mm-hmm. hearing it all. Mm-hmm. He's absorbing mm-hmm. all the info. He's, and we know he's looking for an angle. We know he wants to get out from under Clement. He wants to like get this um, thing that Clement's holding over him of knowing about the murders from five years ago. Like all of that stuff. He, he wants to get shot of Clement completely. And I think that story of him saying, you know, like, yeah, Clement would love a story about playing with Miles Davis, but that thing of you have big ears, it's like, yeah, Sweetie absorbs, he hears, he listens, bartenders hear everything. And um, I thought it was a a sort of a sly way of acknowledging that as much as Clement thinks he's running things, Sweetie is attempting to get one over on him. Another interpretation that I have some sympathy with is this idea that maybe uh, uh, Sweetie's just reflecting on the arc of his life and mm-hmm. how he used to hang out with Miles Davis. And now he's shaken down David Cross with Clement, like waiting in a car, shaken down David Cross. You know, like that's kind of a yeah. far distance to fall. Sweetie's yeah. life has not worked out. And we also learn in this episode that he took out a reverse mortgage, which those are just scams. Those aren't like that's not a real financial instrument. It's a scam. <laughs> And mm-hmm. the fact that Sweetie took one out means he was either really stupid or really desperate, maybe both. Probably, I don't, he doesn't strike me as stupid. He's not a foolish person. Um, but clearly his life has not gone to plan. Clearly he was a talented musician and it just never really happened for him. Um, and now he's in this mess. And so, yeah, I do think there was an element of him just like reflecting like 30 years ago, I was jamming with Miles Davis and now look where I am. Yeah. Any thoughts on what's going on with the painting, right? 
Clement Menzel sees this painting. It seems to be a painting of his childhood. Uh, and then later he goes back for the painting. Like I thought he went back for more money, but he he went back for the painting. Maybe he's going to sell the painting for money, but um, I yeah. I had speculated earlier that like because they actually shot this flashback with Clement Menzel's childhood that this is something that actually happened to him. Um, but I don't know the the way it plays out in this episode is is kind of makes it a, a little bit more ambiguous in my opinion. What do you think? Yeah, it's pretty open-ended. I mean, this is the kind of thing that I think I even noted, like, is this another MacGuffin, like the glass shard and like those little pieces? It's like all these things are kind of in play. Um, I think, though, it might be the closest thing Clement has to a heart is this sentimentality for his childhood home, which was destroyed, his mother who was killed. If that tornado story is true, that's the major inflection point of his life when everything sort of went wrong, when his home was gone and his mother is dead, this wild chaotic moment changes everything. And the, that painting kind of, it's very picturesque. Like it's a very pretty picture of a, a traditional farmhouse with a windmill sitting in a pretty field. And I think it's maybe that will come back or maybe it's just Clement in the moment showing a rare sentimentality, but that's maybe the only thing he is sentimental about is his pre-tornado childhood. Yeah, yeah. Uh, last week, we spent quite a bit of time talking about Clement's motivations. Um, this week, they further clarify them. He just wants to get a big payday, I think is kind of what it yeah. is, right? Like, and, and he has a problem, which is that it's 2023, and nobody has $50,000 cash laying around. <laughs> you know, like, like it's kind of like the Albanian said. It, it's like, it's crypto. It's like Venmo. It's crypto. It's, you know, like, nobody well, yeah, has cer- that. Certainly so. no one involved in, like, legitimate businesses would have that much money, typically. And that's the problem, I think, is because most of the people in the book will probably be actual public figures with legitimate businesses in Detroit, you know? So yeah, they're going to be harder to squeeze than just showing up and saying, actually, I think they started with like 70 K and it's like just showing up and being like, give us $70,000. It's like, nobody has that laying around, <laughs> you know, um, it's going to be in some asset. It's going to be in investments. It's going to be in some crypto thing. It's going to be an art, maybe like the Albanians art collection was maybe where his money really mm-hmm. was like, it's that kind of thing of like, Clement, it's not 1980. You have to remember, City Primeval, the book, was published in 1980. In 1980, mm. people definitely would have had stacks of cash laying around because there wasn't there wasn't much else. Like, there were racehorses and boats. You could put it in racehorses and boats mm-hmm. or just have stacks of cash laying around. So we're, we're witnessing um, the unfortunate collision of... Clement Mansell, the city primeval character, and modernity in the yeah. show, I think, is really what's what's going on. So. But he's also, it is interesting to note, because he's from Oklahoma, right? And I was just in Texas and kind of having, like, thoughts about this. The attitude towards banking, savings, and investment in some places, and it's not a north-south thing, it's more an urban-rural thing, um, is different. So coming from Oklahoma especially if he's coming from rural Oklahoma. Clement, even in the modern day, people that he grew up with, people that maybe that he rolled with earlier in life, earlier in his criminal career, might be more prone to keeping cash on hand or something easily portable like diamonds or precious stones than putting it in a bank, putting it in the stock market, like those things, certainly not putting it in contemporary art or real estate, like parking it in a 
uh, Bert Dickey was a real estate developer. So if he's up to something shady, his money is probably parked in real estate deals. It's parked in empty lots and vacant storefronts and stuff like that. So, but it coming from a rural area, Clement might be more used to people having money on hand because there is more of the attitude is a little bit different when it comes to especially like investment. So, um, it might uh, be a little I, bit. I see. Bad. So, so maybe there's an in-universe explanation for his uh, false expectations. Uh, yeah, because he really does money. just consistently seem to expect people to have money on hand, and <laughs> yeah. it's like definitely in the original novel, people had money on hand. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, and maybe coming from where he comes from, the idea of like, well, if you're a shady person, you probably have like a bug out bag. You probably have stacks of cash and passports yeah. and stuff to get the hell out of town. Um, but nobody in Detroit operates like that. Yeah, yeah. Any other thoughts on the Clement Mansell, Sweetie story and Sandy storyline this week, Sarah? Um, let me see. What was I? I, ju- um, I do want to. I just uh, returning back to one of the points I just made, though. Like I, you know, Sandy says, "Hey, why don't we GTFO?" And he's like, "No, we're going to keep extorting people until we have a suitcase full of cash, and then we're going to leave." So it's it's basically, I guess, Clement just wants money and or to get in touch with his childhood past you know those those are his big motivations this this season it did Uh, when he's when he said we're gonna keep squeezing people i was like "Ooh, this is clement's one last job mm -hmm, (laughs) like like this is this is gonna be his downfall sandy's right you should take what you've got and get the hell out of town absolutely Um, where he's like no we're gonna keep doing this like "Uh, that's it that's the moment that's the bad decision yeah yeah all right so that's what happens with clement and uh and his colleagues there Let's talk about what happens with Raylan and Carolyn. Well, uh, <laughs> what? <laughs> you were so sure that if they slept together, it would be on camera and it wasn't. Okay. Yeah. So uh, first of all, I'm pretty sure you agreed with me, Sarah, if I recall I correctly. I did. I yeah. did. Yeah. So, okay. Okay. Here's, uh, here's where we were. We, I mean, we were both wrong that they, you know, uh, that the, the showing them sleeping together would be off screen. Like we said, oh, it, it wouldn't be like the show to do that. Well, that's exactly what the show did. They slept together overnight off screen. Um, did uh, do you know if like the, do you recall if like the detective Cruz and uh, Carolyn characters slept together in the book? I'm um, curious. I was just curious about that. But if I you don't, don't know, think if it's so. up okay. I don't. I don't think so. Yeah, I, so, I think that's more like Raylan's prone to s- just sleeping with people he shouldn't. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we are both wrong about that. But what we weren't wrong about. Uh, was the fact that if they were going to sleep together, the show would make it abundantly clear that that happened. <laughs> um, and so I think that's exactly what... We, it's, it's actually almost comic. I almost texted you, Sarah, because I was like... <laughs> we. I think you had said the words along the lines of, um, next episode, I don't think we're going to wake up the next day with Raylan in bed. And, and that's exactly <laughs> that's what That's exactly happens. the shot that happened. <laughs> so we are not good justified city primeval prognosticators, unfortunately. No. <laughs> Uh, but what, again, what, where you did get it right was they did make it clear that they were, um, they did have relations with each other. Um, Raylan did spend the night with Carolyn, uh, and then encounters her loser ex Jamal outside of her house. Uh, Carolyn and Raylan seem genuinely into each other despite mutual conflict of interest. Uh, later at dinner, Jamal interrupts Raylan and Carolyn, uh, and they have a big confrontation. So, uh, I, I thought let's just take a moment and pause and reflect on this relationship. One of the things that we had discussed last week, Sarah, was 
uh, is Raylan going to show any growth at all? Spiritually, emotionally, as a person, because if he were going to show growth, he probably shouldn't have slept with Carolyn because uh, she has as multiple of her clients people who Raylan has either assaulted or been assaulted by. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and uh, it's not a good idea to sleep with the lawyer of those people uh, for a wide variety of reasons, especially if you want justice to be done. But it turns out Raylan has learned nothing from his former entanglements. And uh, and I guess I should we, we should pause and reflect on what we think about this development. Well, I think we've seen Raylan's growth in other areas. I mean, also five episodes, he hasn't shot anybody. Um, <laughs> that is significant growth. He's also like determined to get Clement the right way. Like he's really trying right. to work the case. He's trying to get a legitimate reason to arrest Clement and bring him it's in true. on this. Like he's D really trying to do it. Despite literally multiple law enforcement officers telling him straight up, don't do it the fair way. That's literally multiple, including how the episode ends, is don't try to get them the fair way. And Raylan is determined to try to get them the fair way, right? Yes. And they they name check the Hardy Boys in this episode, mm -hmm. which in the original series, I think it comes from Wendell Robinson. I think he's teasing Raylan and he says something like, look at you with the Hardy Boys or something like along those lines. In the original series, Raylan reveals he read Hardy Boys mysteries growing up. And the implication is that that's kind of like a an influence on him is that he loves, he's a deputy marshal. They actually don't investigate crime. They hunt fugitives and execute warrants. But here he is investigating this crime. And that's what he did in the original series. He was always investigating. And it's like this idea that Raylan can't resist a mystery. He can't not pull the thread. And he's trying really hard to do it the right way this time. So I do think we are seeing growth from Raylan in that way. The thing with Carolyn, I think, is too elements. One is, well, he's still Raylan Givens. <laughs> and this is how we know. <laughs> mm -hmm. He's sleeping with ill-advised women, <laughs> mid-case. <laughs> yeah. And and the second thing is, I think they, he, Timothy Olyphant and Anjanue Ellis have fantastic chemistry. Not just like romantic chemistry, which is palpable. Like they are very good at giving Raylan and Carolyn this I said it last time there were vibes this time the vibes are mega <laughs> you know like it's they're fully interested in each other but you also sense their mutual respect like uh, there's an, a mutual there's a mutual appreciation between them that is not just romantic it is also about their roles in the justice system and how they go about you know doing their jobs and carolyn genuinely seems to expect raylan to make an effort to do the job right he seems to want to live up to that standard like i really like their relationship if they weren't involved in the same case i would be like go raylan this is like the perfect woman for you but um you know they're mid-case so it's a bad idea um but i do like i do that's what i think is so compelling about this relationship is they make so much sense as like romantic partners, they make so much sense. There's so much chemistry. It's delightful to watch them on screen, whether they're verbally sparring or, you know, whatever the tone of the conversation is, it's so fun to watch. But oh my God, the conflict of interest is huge and inescapable. And now Jamal, the loser ex, knows she's dating a deputy marshal. Maybe he doesn't have it all put together. But again, here's another person, kind of like Sandy's boss, who's got some information, maybe just enough to be dangerous. Not dangerous even intentionally, maybe dangerous just revealing the wrong thing to the wrong person at the wrong time. Like just all these people who kind of have half a picture of what's going on makes me nervous. Yeah, the Jamal 
storyline really leaves it open to him being able to further mess with her life because yeah. he he has potentially life-changing, life-ruining information about Carolyn, right? Which is that mm-hmm. she is romantically involved with Raylan Givens and therefore is potentially compromising one of her clients. Um, so we'll see if that comes back to bite her or not. Well, and it seems she paid the lien on the house, but that has yeah. left her broke. And she also discovers something about Jamal, though, which is that he's living with a woman. And a- apparently, according to the terms of their divorce, if he's living with somebody, she doesn't have to pay him alimony. So it's like he knows something about her, but she's also got this thing over his head, which is he's... I mean, I, I think it's an easy assumption to make that Jamal... He's, I keep calling him a loser ex. Because he defrauded her and left her with a six-figure lien against her house, it's not based on nothing. Jamal is not a good guy. Um, but I think it's like they each kind of have something on the other now, which is he knows about Raylan. Maybe not the whole story with Clement and everything, but he knows about Raylan. But she's paying his alimony, which you know, he might be dependent upon. So I felt like when Raylan reveals that he's a U.S. Marshal, that is a bad moment for I him. I had a real uh, doink moment. I was like, duh. Yeah, because <laughs> because uh, if he hadn't revealed that information, then Jamal would have no reason to suspect that Raylan is a person of interest of any kind. Um, but now he knows that he's a Marshal and that is very compromising for Carolyn. So we'll see how that plays out. Um, we have more thoughts on Carolyn in a moment. We have an email I wanted to read about it, but let's, uh, let's talk about what else happens in this episode. So uh, the Detroit PD is under pressure from the governor to solve the judge's murder. So Raylan and Wendell Robinson go looking for Raymond Cruz to ask how he took down Clement five years before. Raylan still can't figure out how the judge's notebook and Clement fit together. Clement sends Raylan flowers as a taunt. And at the end of the episode, we learned that Caroline paid the lien on the house, but it has left her broke. She is now willing to use the notebook to boost herself up to that judge's bench, and Sweetie is willing to oblige. So that's what happens the, the rest of the episode. Bunch of stuff here to, to dive into. I, f- I found it interesting that they needed to write this whole elaborate backstory for Cruz. I'm kind of curious, like, what was going on there? You know, why have them visit Cruz's ex-wife and then Cruz, as opposed to just go straight to Cruz, you know, like, was there a reason the ex-wife needed to be there? Is the ex-wife a character from the book? You know, I was kind of curious about that. Um, yeah. But- I mean, I think there is a little bit of acknowledging elements from the book that goes on there. But I also think Justify just always has these little moments where you meet people who are in the world, but not necessarily directly connected to anything. And yeah. it it's part of what makes it feel like such a tangible world is it's occupied by people and it it annoys me when you watch a movie or a show and every single person is directly connected to the main event like in a movie where you have Mm -hmm. two these days three hours um maybe that makes more sense because you do not have it's a, a movie is essentially a short story you do not have the space to just go off on tangents. Although really good movies often do find space for tangents. A recent example being a lot of people are like with Oppenheimer being three hours. They're like, well, why do we need Gene Tatlock, uh, Florence Pugh's character? You know, that's 20, 30, 25 minutes we could have cut out of that movie. And it's like, yeah, but that's a whole side of, of Oppenheimer that it, it's like, it's his intimate side. It's his relational side. And 
you know, it's the side of him that you, if you didn't see that sort of personal side, it's also, she's compromising. She's a known communist and like, there's a whole thing, but people have been like, well, she could have been cut out. And it's like, well, but isn't it nice to kind of have that trip to see when Oppenheimer is with someone with whom he is intimately comfortable? Like that's an interesting quirk of his character. And a TV show has tons of time for that. You know, right. like, TV shows have multiple hours. And I feel like Justified has always done a really good job having these characters. Like you meet um, a fugitive's mom or somebody that you're never going to see again, but for two minutes provides like interesting color, backstory, context, texture. Like you just get all these little, and that's why it feels like such a real world is because it is inhabited by all of these people that's a fair point uh and you know we do get some nice color about wendell in that scene and kind of yeah. his interactions with uh also though sarah I'm, i feel like i'm typically the one trying to convince you that these are just side <laughs> characters that have no further significance to the plot so we have a little role reversal this well week. this this being eight episodes versus the original series 13 i feel yeah. like there's less time for these sidebars right. yeah, but this yeah. was kind of a nice place to plug it in and like you said we, we do learn some stuff about wendell which is that he's had kind of like a health nut conversion and <laughs> it, it's like again it's the suggestion that wendell has a life when Rayla leaves mm -hmm. town yeah. Wendell's life goes on you know? I thought it was fascinating when they're both hanging out they go back to the original scene of the crime and I don't know if you noticed but they're basically having two completely separate conversations like yeah they're one you know uh Raylan is talking about the mystery of the crime and Wendell's just going off about like his own life randomly and like why did I choose to be a detective and like asking these kind of questions uh and I thought that was just a, a really fun depiction of the two of their dynamic but anyway, um, it's also very Cohen. I mean, bringing up the Cohen brothers is mm -hmm. they will have these these characters who have these interactions. I recently rewatched a No Country for Old Men, and I remember the ending frustrated people because it was just sort of an ambiguous moment that didn't yes. seem to directly connect to anything. And it's like, well, but. I mean, Tommy Lee Jones's character, his life goes on like he has to these things happened and yet. Mm -hmm. He just has to go on without clean cut resolution. It's like, that's the point. Um, yeah. So I think it's just, it, it's a really kind of fun. I really like the dynamic of Raylan and Wendell. Like as much as I miss Deputy Gutterson, God, do I miss him? I think Wendell Robinson is a fantastic character. Uh, so there is a scene where Raylan and Cruz meet, which I thought was pretty notable for a wide variety of reasons. First of all, it's because Raylan is <laughs> Cruz's storyline from the book is given to Raylan in the show. So this almost felt like that rule that you're not supposed to violate of two people occupying the same space at the same time or else the universe will collapse in on itself. It's like Raylan is meeting the character that basically inspired his arc in the book. Uh, and Cruz tells a story about this guy that he, uh, that he had a very similar dynamic uh, with the, uh, similar to what Raylan and Clement's dynamic is this season, which is like the guy's a killer. He could, they could never catch him the right way. And so basically Cruz just describes, I think straight up murdering the guy, right? Like he yes. basically, basically straight up murders him and Cruz just says it like, it's not a big deal. And Raylan is horrified, but Cruz is like, yeah, that's, that's how we got the guy. And the, again, you know, he's again, trying to tell Raylan in addition to Norbert, like, some people you just can't get the fair way, so you just got to get them however way you can, whatever way you can, you know. And Which I think I, I did find it strange that Raylan was so 
taken aback by Cruz's story because, like, I never uh, let me retire to the fainting. Raylan, how many times have you threatened (laughs) to murder someone (laughs) to get them to do what you want them to do? I mean, I was a little bit like, you're not an innocent lamb in the woods. Like, why are you so surprised that what he is telling you is you probably aren't going to get Clement Mansell fair and easy? To be fair, there's very few. Okay, I agree with you, Sarah. But there's very few people that Raylan has just straight up murdered in cold blood, right? Like, right. I think Nikki Augustine is like the one, right? And and you can even say, well, he threatened Winona. You can argue he didn't even he didn't actually do that one, right? So, so I think I think he is horrified. Like, oh, this guy that he's talking with just straight up murdered another person in cold blood, like judge, jury, executioner style, you know. And so I understand why he might be horrified at that. But you're right, like. Raylan does not exactly do everything by the book. And so yeah. I, I think he he doth protest too much. I do think it also echoes back to something Wendell said in an earlier episode about Cruz, where he said he was a cop for a little too long. And he implied that there was an incident that resulted in Cruz retiring. And when mm. Cruz told this story and the guy that he killed, uh, the pretense for shooting him was that he had something in his hand. It turned out to be a bottle opener. And it's like, was this the incident? Was this the moment where it's like Cruz has been a cop too long and he knows the system in and out and he knows when it does and doesn't work and he extrajudicially murdered this person um, and then he had to retire uh, as a result of that. Um, so I do think it was kind of interesting that this this might have been what Wendell was hinting at when he first kind of introduced Cruz into the story as, you know, he was a cop a little too long and something happened. Uh, but yeah, I did find Raylan's level of shock to be a little like, come on, my guy. <laughs> um, it was, I don't think he's that surprised because he's kind of already hinted around the idea that he thinks he might have to do something a little more drastic regarding right. Clement. Uh, I really like the scene between Jamal and Carolyn. Here's a character who, you know, at the beginning of the series, we didn't know who she was. I don't think she was in the original Justified as far as I can recall. <laughs> and then not only does she have a nice romance with Raylan, but a very tragic backstory. Uh, and I think the Jamal character is just really well played. Uh, Amin Joseph is the actor who plays Jamal and uh, just does a really great job. You, you kind of feel like you know what that kind of character is. He's like a very smooth talker, very charming, uh, but ultimately has no morals, maybe mildly sociopathic, you know, and, um, and the scene where she kind of leaves him for good is really heartbreaking. And I thought really well done. Um, and you do get the sense of why she would be pushed to, to the limit. Uh, we did get an email at decoding TV at gmail.com from Reginald who wrote in uh, about this episode. In this episode, Carolyn keeps going to extremes On one hand, she displayed holier-than-thou self-righteousness. She tells her friend Diane that she doesn't deserve to be on the bench because Diane is a politician. But on the other hand, by the end of the episode, Carolyn is willing to break the law by blackmailing and extorting people to be a judge. Her last scene with her ex-husband Jamal was magnificently dramatic. It all came out. Here is a good woman who has just got her spirit broken. She admitted it. So like someone with a compromised immune system who is vulnerable to all sorts of maladies, Carolyn is liable to fall victim to all sorts of self-inflicted wounds if she doesn't stop herself. Excellent writing by Isa Davis and excellent acting by Ellis Taylor. This is how you portray a well-rounded, tough, but vulnerable, intelligent, but naive, honorable, but compromised woman. If she doesn't get any consideration, it's a travesty, end quote. Thanks for that email at decodingtv.gmail.com. Sarah Morris, do you agree? 
I do. I think she's such a well-written character and Anjanou Ellis Taylor is crushing it. And who knows when the next Emmys will even be. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like there's always a little bit of a recency bias with Emmy nominations. And then the current Emmys are put off until who knows when. So the next one will be who knows when, like, I wouldn't, it's just going to be a mess. Let's not hold who gets nominated and not as a judge of who's giving a great performance because she is giving a great performance. And Carolyn is just the opposite of Willa. She has so much going on. She's so vital. And it, it does have that feeling of she has tried. She has tried to do it the right way. You do get a sense, not just in this episode, but throughout, that she genuinely believes in the justice system, not as a perfect thing, but as I get maybe better than nothing. Like, I don't think we have like a whole sense of what her feeling on it is, but just the way that she holds Raylan to that standard of get him the right way that she warns sweetie earlier, like, you know, that book is a slippery slope. It's like, this is how people make mistakes. Like, um, and, and I do feel, it does feel like she just has been pushed to the brink, like that lean leaving her with no money and she wants to be a judge and you know, it's like, yeah, she's just at that brink of like, I have tried, I have tried to do it the right way. And it's interesting coming from a black woman who has the system stacked against her the most, you know, it's like her trying to succeed to that level. It is such a hard climb. Everything is designed to work against her. The system is designed to work for people like Raylan. And he takes advantage of that. He takes advantage of his handsomeness and his aw shucks country boy charm that he can turn on and off like a switch. Like he takes advantage of his position as a law enforcement officer. He takes advantage of it without even thinking about it because it is second nature because his whole life, even though he comes from a poor disenfranchised background and there are certainly challenges there, he was still able to ascend to where he wants to be relatively easy. Uh, Carolyn has not. It feels like the sense you get from the way Ellis Taylor inhabits this character is that every step has been a fight and she is tired and worn out and she doesn't have it in her to do it the right way. She's going to take a shortcut. But like she said, that's the slippery slope. That's when people make mistakes. Yeah, I do think it does a good job of portraying this character at the end of the rope and uh, you're right like i i don't know i don't uh, it's it's fascinating because when the show began we were kind of reflecting like what what does a justified look like in a post george floyd world and i do think we are getting a sense of what it is which is Raylan grappling with his you know peer pressure to commit extrajudicial crimes <laughs> and uh and also just real acknowledgement of kind of some of the racial dynamics that are going on here. As you point out in the show notes, Jamal in the episode brings up the history of U S marshals as slave catchers. Um, and the fact that he's white and she's black is a thing that is, um, very relevant to how their relationship can play out. And is kind of like this very, this subtext that needs to be, uh, that needs to be dealt with that the show, the show doesn't just ignore it to the show's credit. It doesn't just ignore it. It's kind of like acknowledging all of these dynamics. Um, and I appreciate how it's doing that. We'll, we'll see what it's ultimately going to have to say about any of these things, or if they're just kind of some, some context for what's going on in the show. Um, but I, I really want Carolyn, like at this point, I'm like, you know what? I don't care. I don't care if she cuts corners. 
I want her to get that judge's bench. If the happy ending for me is Raylan gets to go home to Florida and Willa and Clement ends up dead in a ditch because there's no way that there's just, there's just no way this doesn't end in violence with him. Um, and then Carolyn gets her judge's bench. I, she might not, you know, justified is actually pretty good about reckoning with people who do cut those corners. There usually is a reckoning for it, but this one time I'm like, just let her have it. Just give her the win. <laughs> it's also possible that the show is going to try to say that you can't really achieve something like that without some form of corruption. You know, like the, that her getting the bench would be like a reinforcement of what the show's thesis is on the modern justice system, yeah. um, whatever it may be. So who knows? Uh, but I would agree with you. I think that's a great, that's a good ending for Carolyn. You know, it, um, another equally plausible outcome is she gets to the point where she's about to blackmail someone and she decides, no, I can't do it. I need to do it the legit way. And then yeah. either languishes in obscurity or is able to achieve success despite that. That's another possibility. I do think, speaking of how the show is going to end, because you know we're three episodes away, I do think there's a big possibility that uh, Cruz's description of, I think it's Freddie Keck or whatever the guy's name is that he kills, is going to be very similar to Raylan. Like Raylan's going to shoot Clement, and Clement's going to keep talking as though he hasn't been shot and killed. I was like, this is probably foreshadowing Clement's death. Um, yeah, but yeah. I I don't know because I haven't read the book, but uh, maybe we'll see. So um, maybe Freddie was the Clement analog in the book. Who knows? I have no idea. So. Uh, all right. Any other thoughts on the episode? Any other references we want to mention before we get to our favorite quotes? Um, there was a reference that I found it interesting coming from Carolyn. She name checked um, Fred Hampton and the guy who informed on him, formed against him to the FBI, uh, William O'Neill. There was just a movie about this. Daniel Kaluuya won an Oscar for it. It's uh, Judas and the Black Messiah. It's a fantastic movie if you want Great the film, history yeah. of Fred, Fred Hampton. I did think it was interesting, partially on the meta level of the film, the, the series was shot in Chicago and boy, Fred Hampton and his death just still to this day, 50 years later is, I, I really like having lived here as long as I've lived here. And I've said this multiple times to many people, anytime something about Chicago blows up on the news, I'm like, there's never going to be a good relationship with the police in Chicago. It's never going to happen. They're never going to get over Fred Hampton and they shouldn't. And that's fair. <laughs> like, it's uh, it's just a huge gaping scar on the city and the relationship, the race relations in the city, the relationship with the police in the city, like, it's just a, I was like, ooh, to drop that name, like, wow, just really kind of carries like a, like a, just a ton of bricks dropping in the room. Um, but also just the level of done that Carolyn is with Jamal. I'm like, that is like, to reference that level of betrayal. And like, she's saying, I'm willing to tell on you like William O'Neill told on Fred Hampton. Whew. I'm like, she is done. She's over it. She's at the end of her rope. There's no more. The road has run out. <laughs> I was like, that is such a loaded reference on so many levels. And for Carolyn to, to say that to Jamal, I was like, this woman is so over it. She's passed over it. Over it was 3,000 miles ago. Like there is no more, there is no coming back. And I think you can see it in Jamal's face of realizing that he he has no way back to Carolyn, that, that that ship is completely sailed. It is done and over with. He will never win her over. They were childhood sweethearts who found their way back together as adults and built up this law firm together. And then he 
cheated it somehow. He defrauded her and others and it's cost her everything. And, and him sort of, when she drops that reference and the look on his face of just like, there's, there's really no winning her back. Mm -hmm. Um, Very heavy moment. Yeah. Really effective the way that they kind of give us, give us her whole backstory, you know, through a bunch of random little moments, you know, it's not like, it's, it's yeah. brilliant. If, if anyone out there is like an aspiring screenwriter, this is a brilliant piece of how to handle backstory and exposition without doing the 10 minute info dump where everything stops. Yeah. And one character can just download all the information. It's like little bits and pieces. We learn a little from Sweetie. We learn a little from exactly, Jamal, yeah. from the way she conducts herself in the world, like all these little clues, just the con. And it's that thing of like meeting uh, Raymond Cruz's ex-wife. It's just these little context clues, just these yeah. little bits and you just get it here and there. And then you put the whole piece together. A lesser show. It would be Raylan Givens asks a friend, Hey, give me a file about Anjinu Ellis's character, and yeah. uh, and it's like you know, Carolyn, you know, gr- graduated law school at the blah blah blah, and you know, did the thing at the blah blah, you know, and and yeah. instead, it's like yeah, it's sprinkled throughout, and I think it's much better done. It's this very way. elegant, and it yes. relies so much on the actor's performance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like it's it's totally. Ellis Taylor, and it's not just her. It's it's we see it with you know, Vondi Curtis Hall playing Sweetie. We see it with. Um, Boyd Holbrook playing Clement, who is supposed to be kind of a character with uh, deliberate holes in his backstory and his motivations and things like that. But you see the moments where Clement clicks in and where he's a little bit more focused and where he's less focused. And you kind of, what, what you learn from those things, like the thing with the painting and the way that his face just drops and whatever charm, (laughs) whatever snake-like charm he was trying with, uh, Dickie Bulldozer Bert or uh, Dickie Bert or Bert Dickie, David Cross's character. Um, it, the minute he sees that painting, you just see it on his face. And you know instantly he's back in Oklahoma for a moment. He's not in the room. He's there. And it's just those little moments of, of it, it trusts the act. It's writing that trusts the actors to pick up those pieces and put them together in a way that we learn who these people are through context. And again, no info dumps necessary. It's incredible. The original show was good at that. We never got full pictures on characters, but we saw just enough pieces to put together like the stories of what's going on with these people, what they're dealing with off screen in their lives, what's happening when they're not with Raylan. And it, it, again, it just makes the whole world feel so much richer and tangible. Agreed completely. One final reference that was made in this episode that I want to mention, I'm curious, you know, I learned all about this when I was growing up in Sunday school, but I'm curious uh, what your thoughts were. I- I'm curious, Sarah Mars, what-, what your experience has been with religion and when Carolyn mentions the walls of Jericho, is that a story you're aware of? Because it's oh, yes. definitely a story I-, I knew about growing up, but like, I- I'm and I used to think everyone knew what that story was, but now I'm less sure because we're in a more secular world today. Yeah. Um, but what well, is your I, understanding of the walls of Jericho? I also like, there are things that you bring up that I'm like, Oh, I don't want to engage with that because I don't, it gets into book territory mm. and the show's not over. They still, they have made big swings away from the book. So mm-hmm. it's like, it doesn't mean that just because this happens in the book, it's going to happen in the show. But I'm also like, oh, right. I don't want to accidentally step on something that like sure. might I, still pop up in the remaining three episodes. But I do know that story. It's um, the wall of Jericho and the trumpet sounds and the wall comes down. Yeah. Basically, like the walls of Jericho were perceived to be this impenetrable fortress. And as part of the Israelites conquering the land of Canaan, I believe, uh, the way they were going to surmount it is, hey, 
walk around the walls of Jericho once a day for six days. And on the seventh day, walk around it seven times, blast your trumpets. And then in the, as the story goes in the book of, I believe, Joshua, um, the walls come tumbling down. Yeah, there's uh, a good song. There's a really yes. good gospel song. I, I have performed um, it. So. I got kicked out of Sunday school all the time because I was always hiding comic books and goosebumps and fear street yeah. and things like that in the Bible. And I would get nice. in trouble for, or I would ask too many questions. Um, that never went over well. So I sort of checked out on the whole thing, but I definitely remember like the trumpet sounds, the wall comes down. It was supposed to be the impenetrable city and it, the walls fall, the city falls. And that's what Carolyn says. She says like everybody, every name in the city is in here. And she seems she has a strong reaction to a name we don't hear or see. There's someone in the book that she immediately clicks yes. on. And that's when she says, you know, if there are walls, like they're going to come down. Right. Right. Indicating that the, the book has some very big people. And there were people that when, when boy, boy, sorry. Um, when Clement was asking, you know, like, who do we go after? There were people Sweetie didn't want to touch. There were people that he was like, mm, no, like, so it sort of makes you wonder who is Carolyn going to go after? Cause she I, does I think seem- there's only, there's only like one or two characters. It could be right. Like, unless they're going to, I don't think they're going to introduce a new character at this point. So I mean, it might be that Albanian. <laughs> I'm going to say it was one, it's one of the two people that, that uh, we don't really talk that much about uh that work at the police station so it was like this episode we got like reintroduced to the police commissioner and then also yeah. Raylan's quasi boss right like, yeah the chief deputy the chief Lou. deputy or the commissioner like goes up and he i think it's the commissioner or it's like the station chief or something but he's the guy that like yells at everyone for not finding the killer so um maybe it's one of those two people because those are known characters yeah. And that would make sense that she would react strongly to those people being in the book. So, yeah. Uh, it's, anyway. getting, it's getting awfully late to introduce new people. Yeah. But I also feel like there's got to be some way to tie the Albanian stuff into this. Like, there's got to be some cross point where all that going on lands on all this going on. Because these are kind of the two main plots is there's that blood feud and Toma and Delvina. And all these like Sandy's so freaked out about the Albanians and sweetie doesn't want to mess with them either. And then there's this, you know, Clement using the notebook to blackmail people. And it's like, at some point, all this needs to go together. And that's what the original show was really good at is sort of setting up these multiple threads and then the way they come together in the end. Yeah. And I'm hoping we'll get that moment this episode uh, or this season, I should say. I do. I'm curious, like, uh, is it all going to come together in a satisfying way? Or is this kind of the structure of the season? We're just like every episode, we meet some new side characters and then, uh, you know, and then go on a different adventure. You well, know, like, I, I think yeah. some things won't like, like Cruz's ex-wife. I don't think we're going to see or hear from her again. I think she was about that one moment having a fun little interaction with Wendell and then, you know, Cruz telling his story. Maybe we don't even see Cruz again. Maybe this was just his one moment and his purpose is to, tell Raylan this story about the time that he dealt with someone like Clement and how he had, how far he had to go to end it all. Like maybe that's all we see of Cruz. I do still think like Jamal and Sandy's boss have a little bit of dangerous info floating out there that they might, again, I don't think they have to be big characters or they don't have to do a lot, but they might pop up for one scene in the remaining three episodes and just drop their little bit that kind of chum the water a little bit. Um, you know, so I think some of this stuff is going to come back. I am starting to, to think Will is not returning, which at least, at least at that level, 
she will have learned something and absorbed this isn't the moment to fight with her dad. <laughs> At least Willa learned a valuable lesson and it was all worth it. It was worth flying Vivian Oliphant to set just for that. Yeah. Um, uh, also, watch literally, I'm calling it right now, Sorry, She's going to be in the first scene of the next episode. We're going to be like, <laughs> she's going <laughs> to... I, I do still think certain things like that glass shard, especially when um, when Cruz was telling his story and he's like, I shot the guy and it turned out he was just holding a bottle opener. I was like, mm, the glass shard. Like, it's just, it's still out there. Mm. <laughs> so Yeah, yeah. And I assume that's not something that's in the book or else you wouldn't be fake predicting it. Uh, no, or... I, I, I just think it's, it's Willa picked it up and gave it to Raylan. Yeah. And I think there's going to be some moment with that toward mm-hmm. the end where it's going to sort of all come full circle on some way. And then, and then he'll say something clever to Willa about the glass shard and, and that will be that. All right. <laughs> we will find out very soon. Sarah Morris, uh, until next week, where can people find more of your work on the internet? Um, my writing is on laneygossip.com. My film reviews and TV reviews are on uh, Rotten Tomatoes. If you want to know my feelings on Only Murders in the Building, <laughs> it's there. Um, I'm on various social medias at Cinesnark. And of course, uh, if you want to subscribe to this podcast, podcast.decodingtv.com. And if you want to become a paid member, that really helps us out. Uh, decodingtv.com is where you can do that. And be sure to keep subscribed to hear my coverage of shows like Twisted Metal with Patrick Klepek. We also recently covered Full Circle, and we have a bunch of other coverage of exciting TV shows coming in the near future. So uh, keep it subscribed on podcast.decodingtv.com as well as on our YouTube channel. All right, Sarah, we like to wrap up with favorite quotes from the episode. What's your favorite quote from the episode? Uh, my favorite quote comes from Clement Manziel, where he says... Um, somebody says it's a walk in the park and he says, have you walked in the park lately? It's full of bums and perverts from Clement Manziel who killed Rose in a park. Pretty rich, pretty rich. Uh, my favorite moment was early on in the episode when you just realized that they've been sleeping together. This is an awkward moment. There's, they filmed like a few awkward scenes. I really appreciated it where, uh, Carolyn comes back after having jogged. Right? She's all sweaty after having jogged and Raylan's still there. And it's that awkward moment when you've slept, you know, not that I have experienced this at all or recently, I'm just speculating um, that uh, the awkward moment when you've slept with someone and then you, you don't know what their morning routine is. And so you wake up and like you're, they don't really want you there. Like they have their own stuff they want to do. Um, and he encounters her in the bathroom. He's kind of, this is the most awkward I've seen Raylan, honestly. And uh, she says something to him like, this didn't happen. And he says, oh, so don't tell everyone at school. <laughs> and I just thought that was so like the funniest line for some reason of like, yeah, yeah no, duh. You know, I think I think I get it. I'm not supposed to like share about this. This is very compromising. He for overslept on the morning after. Yeah. And he's just taking up space. She is getting on with her morning. She's yeah, got stuff she's, to do. She's got stuff to do. She's got a routine to um, do. And he you know? is usually smoother than that. But also Carolyn is like a higher caliber woman than he usually tangles with. Like <laughs> mm-hmm. she is busy. She has a life. Yes. So. This is no uh Ava Crowder we're dealing with. Yeah, I mean nothing. Here. I mean Ava was fine, but like Ava was just a different person in a different time and place. And Carolyn isn't dependent the way she doesn't really need anything from Raylan. In fact, Raylan is a detriment to her. So, <laughs> And you really kind of feel it in that morning after that awkwardness is like, this is just emphasizing that you are in the way. Indeed. Indeed. All right. 
Well, those are our thoughts on this week's episode of Justified City Primeval. Let us know what you thought, decodingtv at gmail.com. We'll see you next week for another recap of the next episode of Justified City Primeval. Goodbye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.